Broadcasting Company delays the start of all its programs to bring you a special bulletin. It was announced in San Francisco half an hour ago by a high American official not identified as saying that Germany has surrendered unconditionally to the Allies, no strings attached, and that the announcement is to be made formally by General Eisenhower. I'll repeat that. The formal announcement has not yet been made, but the official says that Germany has surrendered unconditionally to America, Britain, and Russia. And so it was on May the 7th, 1945, that the first bulletins were received indicating the surrender of the German high command. It had been a mere week since Adolf Hitler had committed suicide. In many ways, it finalized a victory that had already been won. But as we're going to hear from H.V. Kaltenborn, there were many reasons for this delay, and even when the early word leaked out, many questions that were legitimately in people's mind. So here now is H.V. Kaltenborn, the veteran newsman and analyst from May the 7th. We regret that due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to bring you San Francisco at this time. Feeling we take you now to San Francisco. And the war ends. Come in, Mr. Kaltenborn. Is that there is a long process when peace ceases to exist and war begins to come, and then, at a given moment, such as that at Pearl Harbor, there is a dramatic opening of the actual fighting. Well, similarly, when a war ends, the shooting ceases first here and there, in one country or another. There is one surrender, and then another, and then finally, whatever authority is left in the defeated countries make some sort of an arrangement with the victorious countries, and then, for the sake of the people, more than to give them any news, there is an official proclamation that the war is over. Well, that's the sort of thing that's been happening now for the past few weeks. We could have proclaimed VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, at any time for at least uh, two weeks past, and it would have been a perfectly legitimate thing. Because, obviously... In a war that is as far extended as this, that covers as many parts of the world, that has overrun all of Europe, that has left pockets of resistance in a score of islands in the Mediterranean, in the English Channel, in the pockets of France at the harbors on the western part of France, in various parts of Austria, of Czechoslovakia, of Germany, of Denmark, of Norway, it's probably impossible that the war could actually end at any given moment. Because no matter who is in charge in Germany now, he is not in such complete charge that he controls all the German elements that are still fighting. And we have just had a bulletin to the effect that even though it may all be true that Admiral Dönitz and General Krosik have signed some sort of formal document with the Allies for a complete surrender, those troops in Czechoslovakia who are acting more or less independently under their commander there, said that they would not surrender unless they were guaranteed free passage across Czechoslovakia back into Germany. Perhaps they don't realize the extent to which Germany is already occupied by Allied forces. And then, on this particular war end, we have another complicating feature. We have the fact that while the Germans have now reached the point where they are completely willing to surrender to Great Britain and the United States, they do not wish to surrender to the Soviet Union. And yet, for our part, we cannot accept any such partial surrender. We are under obligations to the Soviet Union in a signed and sealed document that the surrender is to be joint, that it is to be addressed to all three powers. And would be, we would be unfaithful to our obligations to the Soviet Union if, when it comes to a general surrender, on the government level, that is, as between Dönitz and Krozik, and perhaps Himmler on the one hand, and either uh, General Eisenhower or the three governments on the other, because Eisenhower does represent the Allied governments, well, unless we get it on something less than the government level, we couldn't take it unless it were addressed to all three powers. And a large part of the negotiation that's been going on during the past week just concerns 
the unwillingness of the Germans to make the surrender to Russia and our unwillingness to accept the surrender that does not formally include the Soviet Union. That's been the fundamental trouble. That's why we've had these various false reports. That's why there have been meetings of various kinds between German emissaries and American and British emissaries trying to work out that particular point. Well, let's assume that now we've finally gotten uh, Dönitz and Krozik and whatever there is of a German government, that government that has been moving from uh, Berlin to Kiel and then from Kiel into Denmark and from Denmark perhaps back to Flensburg on the uh, Danish-German frontier, uh, that that government has now decided, all right, we'll surrender to all three governments. Well, if that has happened, why then naturally... Uh, they would issue Dönitz, would issue a report to his submarine commanders, urging them to cease fighting. But you can't tell what a German submarine commander would do under those circumstances. He might uh, uh, prefer to continue to go on his own. He might try to reach Spain or Argentina in the hope that he could hold up there, or at least that he wouldn't have to surrender his ship to the enemy, that he could find refuge in a neutral port. And it's also quite possible that some of those submarine commanders would give up. For example, they might take their ships into British ports <clears throat> or even into American ports, depending on where they happen to be located when that word comes. It certainly does not mean that our Navy is going to assume that all German submarines will hereafter be good and that they will go on as though peace were already restored. No, this is an instance where the transition from war to peace has been a very slow one, has been very partial, and will not be completed by the mere announcement that the shadow government which has succeeded the Hitler-Göring-Goebbels regime is now in a position to control everybody who is still fighting. We have here the complete disintegration, first of an alliance, and then of a nation. You remember that the story of capitulations wholesale began in Italy, following the great offensive by the Fifth and the Eighth Armies, which had worked valiantly and without much success throughout the winter and into the spring before the great bastion of Bologna. Then suddenly they launched their offensive some six weeks ago. They began driving forward steadily. There was no holding them. And after overcoming the first line of German resistance, they drove in across the plains of the Po River and behind Bologna and the German commander in that area, after token resistance for another two weeks, saw that it was all over and decided that he would give up the fight. And then after a certain amount of negotiation, there was a local military surrender in the Italian area between General Alexander representing the Allies and the German commander, according to which something like 600,000 German troops gave up their arms. Well, that was the beginning, but that covered only Italy and the western part of Austria. There were still other troops fighting in Austria, fighting in Czechoslovakia, in Germany, and all over Scandinavia. And so, that was only point one in this surrender. Well, then came... Point two, we had the continued advance of the third and the seventh armies down south towards Austria. We had the further drive on the part of the British in the north. And the second really great surrender came to the British armies under General Montgomery. The Germans in the north pulled back from their Russian front and as many of them as could surrendered to General Montgomery. That negotiation came on the German-Danish border. That also involved something like half a million troops. We really don't know exactly how many because the numbers are so large that they have still been unable to count them all. And then that followed a complete success by the British forces in driving up towards a junction with the Russians near the Baltic beyond Hamburg, in the area between Hamburg and Stettin. Well, there, too, the British had taken close to half a million soldiers before the formal surrender, which gave them another half million. However, all that 
adds up to perhaps <clears throat> a total of two million troops involved. And, as we know, the Germans still had a matter of five or six million. We must remember that they had mobilized this uh, Volkssturm, which, while it was not particularly efficient, was yet an organized military force. And so there were, in addition to these two armies that surrendered, huge armies that were being prepared, that were being drilled, that were being held in reserve, in addition to those that were at the front. And, of course, the Germans have had probably their best remaining available forces fighting against the Russians. The Russians succeeded in taking Berlin only with a magnificent effort. Let no one suppose that they had an easy time in their last final drive across the Oder River between uh, Frankfurt and Breslau and that march forward towards Berlin. It was That was a very hard struggle that will stand out as one of the most brilliant Russian campaigns of the entire war because the Germans had definitely established their strongest, most determined resistance in that particular area east of Berlin. But the Russian offensive there covered a relatively small area. It was only some time later that they also succeeded in driving through Stettin. And even after they got that far, they still met tremendous German resistance. And then came that rather curious relation between the American army advancing across the Elbe in the direction of Berlin and the Russians marching west of Berlin. We could have taken Berlin. Frankly, I'm convinced of that on the basis of the military situation as it stood after we had made our plunge through Germany, had reached the Elbe, and had crossed the Elbe at at least three different points. And we were pushing forward, and I'm convinced could have pushed forward, when orders were received from General Eisenhower to go back to the river and to take up the line that hadn't been agreed upon between Russia and the United States and Great Britain for the Russian occupation. You see, what makes this war rather more complicated is this matter of the Allies, of their respective zones of occupation, of the German unwillingness to surrender to Russia what they're now entirely willing to, render, to surrender to Britain and the United States. And because of that situation, we've got to be particularly careful and particularly tactful not to give the Russians the impression that we are perfectly willing to accept something from the Germans which is not in complete accord with our previous agreements. And that's one reason why everybody in Britain and the United States is leaning over backwards so as to make no public announcement that might be misunderstood by the Russians as our having accepted a German surrender in which they are equally interested, which they have done so much to enforce, and which they are entitled to announce at the exact moment that we announce it. And there, you come to the different situation that exists in news services and in the handling of news in the Soviet Union and in the United States. Now, I venture to say that at this particular time, President Truman might think what a happy thing it would be if at certain moments in history, a president of the United States had absolute command of the news services and could determine just when they should and when they should not make certain announcements. Now, in Soviet Russia, where I have worked as a newspaper man, there there is absolutely no difficulty because nobody can say anything to anybody by way of print unless a government official has first okayed it. So no one representing the press of the Soviet Union is in Europe trying to score what we call a beat on the announcement of an armistice. But look at the conditions with respect to the news services in the United States and Britain. All of them have been keyed for weeks to be ready for this announcement, not to permit one news service to get it ahead of the other. And so they've all been watching. They've been following the individuals who've been carrying on the negotiations. And obviously, negotiations have gone on continuously. Don't forget that so far as the Italian surrender alone is concerned, that began, the negotiations began in the middle of March and were only completed a few days ago. Therefore, the negotiations for surrender insofar as an existing German government can provide for it, those negotiations have been underway. And the alert newsmen of Britain and the United States have been following them. And this morning, we heard from one of them who thought that he has the correct announcement 
with regard to what has happened. Now, my guess is that he probably has some very definite information. But since V.E. Day is to be officially proclaimed, that means that it won't... Welcome back. Well, apologies that uh, the existing audio cuts off there. Uh, really was hard up against the uh, network break, and uh, NBC chimes would not be denied. Of course, it was the case that victory had occurred. And this uh, presentation uh, that we're going to play lasts about an hour, and it includes uh, comments from uh, President Truman, as well as from Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And uh, to, and throughout, there are some audio uh, issues, uh, particularly when we're talking about some of the shortwave communications. And it does kind of cut out at the end. But we, what we do have is certainly worth uh, listening to. So here now is about an hour of NBC's coverage of VE Day. NBC interrupts all its programs to bring you an address by the President of the United States. Good morning from the White House in Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. This is a solemn but a glorious hour. I only wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to witness this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity. Our rejoicing is sobered and subdued by a supreme consciousness of the terrible price we have paid to rid the world of Hitler and his evil band. Let us not forget, my fellow Americans, the sorrow and the heartache which today abide in the homes of so many of our neighbors, neighbors whose most priceless possession has been rendered as a sacrifice to redeem our liberty. We can repay the debt which we owe to our God, to our dead, and to our children only by work, by ceaseless devotion to the responsibilities which lie ahead of us. If I could give you a single watchword for the coming months, that word is work, work, and more work. We must work to finish the war. Our victory is but half won. The West is free, but the East is still in bondage to the treacherous tyranny of the Japanese. When the last Japanese division has surrendered unconditionally, then only will our fighting job be done. We must work to bind up the wounds of a suffering world, to build an abiding peace, a peace rooted in justice and in law. We can build such a peace only by hard, toilsome, painstaking work, by understanding and working with our allies in peace as we have in war. The job ahead is no less important, no less urgent, no less difficult than the task which now happily is done. I call upon every American to stick to his post until the last battle is won. Until that day, let no man abandon his post or slacken his efforts. And now I want to read to you my formal proclamation of this occasion. A proclamation. The Allied armies, through sacrifice and devotion, and with God's help, have wrung from Germany a final and unconditional surrender. The Western world has been freed of the evil forces 
which for five years and longer have imprisoned the bodies and broken the lives of millions upon millions of freeborn men. They have violated their churches, destroyed their homes, corrupted their children, and murdered their loved ones. Our armies of liberation have restored freedom to these suffering peoples whose spirit and will the oppressors could never enslave. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. The whole world must be cleansed of the evil from which half the world has been free. United, the peace-loving nations have demonstrated in the West that their arms are stronger by far than the might of the dictators or the tyranny of military cliques that once called us soft and weak. The power of our people to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it has been proved in Europe. For the triumph of spirit and of arms which we have won, and for its promise to the peoples everywhere who join us in the love of freedom, it is fitting that we as a nation give thanks to Almighty God who has strengthened us and given us the victory. Now, therefore, I, Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America, do hereby appoint Sunday, May 13, 1945, to be a day of prayer. I call upon the people of the United States, whatever their faith, to unite in offering joyful thanks to God for the victory we have won, and to pray that he will support us to the end of our present struggle and guide us into the ways of peace. I also call upon my countrymen to dedicate this day of prayer to the memory of those who have given their lives to make possible our victory. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States of America to be affixed. You have heard the President of the United States. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. gentlemen, while you have been listening to the President of the United States, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain, has been addressing the people of the British Empire via BBC. We have recorded that address, and now here is the voice of Britain's Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, the Right Honorable Winston Churchill. Yesterday morning, at 2.41 a.m., at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Force and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. General Beadle Smith, 
Chief of Staff of the United States Army, and General Francois Chavez signed the document on behalf of the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force. And General Suslokarov signed on behalf of the Russian High Command. Today this agreement will be ratified and confirmed at Berlin, where Air Chief Marshal Tedder, Deputy Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, and General de Lat de Cassigny will sign on behalf of General Eisenhower. General Zhukov will sign on behalf of the Soviet High Command. The German representatives will be Field Marshal Keitel, Chief of the High Command, and the Commanders-in-Chief of the German Army, Navy, and Air Forces. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. One minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. But in the interest of saving lives, the ceasefire began yesterday to be sounded all along the front, and our dear Channel Islands, are also to be freed today. The Germans are still in places resisting the Russian troops. But should they continue to do so after midnight, they will, of course, deprive themselves of the protection of the laws of war and will be attacked from all quarters by the Allied troops. It is not surprising that on such long fronts and in the existing disorder of the enemy, the commands of the German high command should not in every case have been obeyed immediately. This does not, in our opinion, with the best military advice at our disposal, constitute any reason for withholding from the nation the facts communicated to us by General Eisenhower of the unconditional surrender already signed at Reims, nor should it prevent us from celebrating today and tomorrow Wednesday as Victory in Europe Day. Today, perhaps, we shall think uh, mostly of ourselves. Tomorrow, we shall pay a particular tribute uh, to the uh, heroic Russian comrades whose uh, prowess in the field has been one of the grand contributions to the general victory. The German war is therefore at an end. After years of intense preparation, Germany hurled herself on Poland at the beginning of September 1939, and in pursuance of our guarantee to Poland, and in common with the French Republic, Great Britain, the British Empire, and Commonwealth of Nations, declared war upon this foul aggression. After gallant France had been struck down, we from this island and from our United Empire maintained the struggle single-handed for a whole year, until we were joined by the military might of Soviet Russia and later by the overwhelming power and resources of the United States of America. Finally, almost the whole world was combined against the evildoers who are now prostrate before us. Our gratitude to all our splendid allies goes forth from all our hearts in this island and throughout the British Empire. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing, but let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, 
remains unsubdued. The injuries she has inflicted upon Great Britain, the United States, and other countries, and her detestable cruelties, call for justice and retribution. We must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our task, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia! Long live the cause of freedom! God save the King! Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we had hoped to be able to bring you a transcription of the Victory Day proclamation of Premier Joseph Stully. NBC monitors in both New York and San Francisco have been standing by, listening to Moscow Radio for some word that the Russian Premier might speak. As yet, there has been no VE Day proclamation from the Kremlin. Presumably, that will come later. Now, for a special broadcast, an eyewitness report from NBC's reporter at Supreme Allied Headquarters in Paris, we take you to NBC's W.W. Chaplin in Paris. W.W. Chaplin in Paris. One moment, please. Acting as special emissary of Hitler's successor, Admiral Gernick, Colonel, Colonel General Gustav Yodel surrendered all of... This is W.W. W. Chaplin at Allied Supreme Headquarters in Paris. The war in Europe was at last ended, and I was witness to the German signature that uttered in peace by the door of unconditional surrender. Acting as special emissary of Hitler's successor, Admiral Gernick, Colonel General Gustav Yodel surrendered all of Germany to all of the Allies, including Russia, at 2.41 o'clock yesterday morning. I was one of seven correspondents representing American news organizations to stand in General Eisenhower's war room and watch the surrender. General Yodel signed the papers of surrender on any terms we choose to impose. And then I heard him make one of the strangest little speeches in history, beseeching our generosity toward Germany, because, he said, Germany has suffered so. Although the war was officially ended in Europe by the Yodel signature, the formal cessation of hostilities does not become legally effective until one minute past midnight tonight, Paris time, which is one minute past 6 p.m. this afternoon, Eastern wartime in America. Actually, of course, hostilities had virtually ceased before the surrender was signed, because the German armies had already separately surrendered or were in flight. After surrendering in the war room, General Yodel went hat in hand to the office of General Eisenhower and gave his personal promise that the terms laid down in disarmament documents he signed at the same time as the surrender would be promptly and faithfully observed. After the German left, General Eisenhower said the unconditional surrender formula pronounced at Casablanca had been faithfully carried out. Germany has surrendered unconditionally. The unconditional surrender by Germany to all the Allies was signed at General Eisenhower's advanced headquarters in the city the French called Lund but which many Americans know as we. To avoid confusion, I'll use the anglicized pronunciation and tell you about the surrender at we. I can tell you about it in detail because I was an eyewitness to the ceremony. German Colonel General Yodel signed the papers at 2.41 in General Eisenhower's war room while seated not more than 10 feet from where I was standing. I was so close that I could see a drop of perspiration run slowly down his flat, tough face and dropped from his stubborn chin under the hand that was writing finish to the night's mere history of Nazism. When he'd signed the unconditional surrender, 
and another document concerning immobilization of all armed forces after hostilities formally ceased. Those documents were signed by Allied officers, and a war of almost six years' duration had run its course. Then this hard-faced German with a bald crown topping his gray head rose slowly to his feet. He said in English, I would like to say a few words. Speaking in German. With this signature, he said, gesturing to the signed document, the German people and the German armed forces are, for better or worse, delivered into the hands. In this war, which has lasted more than five years, both people and their armed forces both have achieved and suffered more than perhaps any other people in the world. In this hour, I can only express the hope that the victor will treat them with generosity. Standing there close behind him, I noticed that he was less than a dozen feet from a wall chart, showing Allied casualties in dead, wounded, and missing, a total in seven figures. Beside that chart, he stood and pled for generosity. He said, Germany has achieved and suffered more in the war than any other nation. As he made this plea, General Yodel looked across the table at the Allied generals and admirals, Russian, French, British, and American. From just behind him, I watched their faces, too. They were impassive, unresponsive, as blank as the windows of an empty Without another word, General Yodel picked up his cap and walked out of the room. I imagine the best way to make you see this historic event, as I was so fortunate as to be able to see it in close-up, is to run right through what happened from the minute that General Yodel arrived at Green. Earlier negotiations had fallen through because the man sent to conduct them didn't have sufficient authority. He is General Admiral Hans George Peterberg, who used to run the German submarine. And he succeeded Admiral Junet as chief of the whole German Navy when the latter succeeded Hitler as chancellor. When it was evident that Admiral Friedeberg couldn't do business on the grand scale demanded by the Allies, Jonas was told to give him more authority or send someone else to attend. The answer to that was Yoda. He arrived at the in a second plane at 5 o'clock, 5.08 o'clock, exactly on Saturday afternoon. He was escorted by Allied officers and accompanied by a worried-looking aide, Major Wilhelm Ostinger. General Yodel looked anything but worried. He saluted Allied officers who met him at the field ship, using the military as not the Nazi salute. Waggard was seeming arrogant to the waiting car and climbed in, and so to say, take me to this Eisenhower and I'll cut him down to his own staff. And the way he gave him completely late, this attitude was apparently a bluff by which he hoped most sanely to scare us into imposing a soft speech. A five-minute drive brought the emissary to advance to Queen headquarters where General Eisenhower has been stationed for more than two months. This historic headquarters and the signing of the Reims surrender was formerly a large co-educational industrial school and is still in the square with a large quadrangle inside onto which all doors open. General Yodel and his aides were taken at once to the suite of Lieutenant General Walter Bedell Smith, USA, which is who is General Eisenhower's chief of staff and who is known throughout the European theater as Beadle Smith. General Smith was a man handling the surrender conversation, as it's apparently not military protocol for a supreme commander who has any dealings with a enemy officer until he has actually surrendered. Admiral Friedeberg joined General Yodel in General Smith's suite, his only greeting being an abrupt exclamation of, Ha ha! Then they were taken to meet General Smith and begin surrender talk. From then on, affairs moved slowly. It had to be made absolutely certain. First, that Admiral Junet really could commit the German people and the armed forces. And second, that General Yodel really was his fully empowered emissary. This took from the first meeting at 6.15 Saturday afternoon until early yesterday morning. Meanwhile, we privileged correspondents permitted to witness the surrender waited with what patience we could in a ground floor conference room. During that time, we never felt any absolute certainty that the powwow would prove successful. In fact, when we were told shortly after 8 o'clock that nothing would be coming out until at least 11. I heard one high American officer mutter, and maybe not at all. It ain't all rosy. Well, we finally got our call at 2.05 in the morning, and at last entered the big war room, which was a stage set for the signing of the surrender. The Allied officers came in first, British, then French, then the Russians, and finally the Americans. They remained standing around the big conference table along one side and both ends until the Germans arrived. The general, the admiral, and the general's aide. General Yodel walked straight to his place at the center of the table's unoccupied side, 
threw his cap on the table and sat down without a gesture or a word to anyone. And then the others sat down. A few quiet words from General Smith, and the sheaf of documents were laid in front of Yoder. He was handed a pen. He was told to sign. He signed. Then the other signed, and it was done. All in four minutes. A war that lasted almost six years was ended just like that. In four minutes. War room where German General Yodel signed Germany's unconditional surrender made a colorful stage for this stirring drama, which never for a moment lost its restraint to even verge on emotionalism or melodrama. I walked into it at 2.05 in the morning, and the first Allied officers to enter came at 2.29, so I had ample time to study it. It's a big, square, second-floor room, which would be square, rather, except that one corner has been walled off to make another small room. The walls are covered with maps and charts. There are two big, red-figured Turkish rugs on the floor. And opposite the door was a long conference table with place guards in front of each of the 17 chairs. A space on a bare floor has been marked off the chalk as standing room for the few correspondents privileged to have an eyewitness view of the historic building. The correspondents were crowded behind their chalk line to make sure they didn't get in the way of the score and more movie and still photographers. Clusters of lights and reflectors were festooned from the ceiling, and most of the cameramen were also well supplied with black bulbs. On the black top wooden table, there was a large pad and pencil at each plate, and an ashtray. Directly between General Smith and General Yoder was a microphone connected with a recording device also installed in one corner of the room. When all were in their places, General Smith, as Allied chief of staff, sat halfway down the Allied side, directly facing the Germans. Leaning over the Germans, Shoulder from behind was Major General K.W.D. Strong, Chief Intelligence Officer for General Eisenhower and former British military attaché at Berlin. He translated a few quiet words spoken by General Smith, who looked very tired and whose voice was scarcely audible across the few feet separating me from the surrender table. On General Smith's left were Russia, Russian General Ivan Sutsloperov, Chief of the Soviet Mission to France, our Air General Carl Spott, Air Marshal Sir J.N. Rudd, Major General H.R. Paul, and the other Soviet representatives, Colonel Zenkovich. On General Smith's right were Admiral Sir Harold Burrow, General Severes for the French, Lieutenant General Sir F.D. Morgan, and Colonel Pedrin of the American staff, and Captain Harry Butcher, who is General Eisenhower's naval aide. After General Yodel had signed the surrender document, it was signed by General Smith for the Western Allies, by General Koslatoff for Russia, and by General Severes for the French. The document calling for immobilization of German armed forces carried the additional signatures of Admiral Sir Harold Burrow as commander of the Allied naval forces and of Admiral Friedeberg as head of the German fleet. So the papers were signed and so the war ended. This is W.W. Chaplin in Paris and now we bring to you General Eisenhower's own victory statement as I saw it recorded at his headquarters by Army Signal Corps technicians immediately after the momentous signing of the peace. just heard a, an eyewitness report by W.W. W. Chaplin, NBC's noted war correspondent, of the actual surrender by Nazi Germany to the three major powers, the United States, Great Britain, and Russia. Now for a summary of the day's events, we take you to Morgan Beatty at NBC in Washington. This is Morgan Beatty in the NBC newsroom in Washington. For exactly 31 minutes, you have been hearing the beginning of VE Day in Europe and in America. It began at exactly 9 o'clock with a statement by President Harry S. Truman in the White House that he'd been notified by General Eisenhower from his headquarters in Paris that the forces of Germany had surrendered to the Allied nations. And then President Truman proclaimed Sunday, May the 13th, as a day of prayer for all people of this nation, whatever their faith, to give thanks and ask for the support of God to the end of the war. He also asked that we dedicate ourselves at this time to the memory of those who died. 
President Truman held a press conference before he went on the air to read to reporters and newsmen exactly what he was going to say 30 minutes later. And then came the report from Prime Minister Winston Churchill from Great Britain. The report that indicated great deal, a great many of the reasons why there have been delays in the last three or four days. Probably the most important of which was the fact that we insisted on a surrender by both a German government and the German military authorities. It was Prime Minister Churchill who gave us the report that the actual ceasefire order in this war started yesterday, but that the actual end of the war would not come until one minute past midnight tonight. And then came that dramatic report from W.W. Chaplin in Paris, an eyewitness, NBC's eyewitness, to the signing of the peace document in the headquarters of General Eisenhower at Reims. There again, W.W. Chaplin confirms that the insistence of the Allied powers on both a military and a governmental surrender has been the cause of much of the delay. There was an attempt on the part of Admiral Dönitz, the man who claims to be head of the German state, the successor to Adolf Hitler. There was apparently an attempt on his part to avoid a complete surrender. He didn't send a man with enough credentials at first, and finally he had to send his chief of staff of the German army, Gustav Jodl, as the Associated Press reported yesterday, and that man signed in the name of both the army and the civil government of Germany. The importance of that was indicated by Prime Minister Churchill when he told us that the important thing here was to outlaw all German military forces that may continue to fight after one minute past midnight tonight. In view of the fact that we have not heard in this last 31 minutes from Moscow, it would be indicated that Premier Stalin, Marshal Stalin of the Soviet Republics, is intending to wait until a Berlin surrender, uh, one that will follow the ceremony at Reims on yesterday and one that is supposed to come later today. Marshal Stalin apparently wishes to wait until the Berlin surrender occurs, and at that time, then he will go before the Russian people and tell them that the end of the war has come. He would prefer, apparently, to have the surrender come from the capital of the state that has been conquered by the Allied Nations. And thus it is that, as W.W. W. Chaplin told us, a war that has lasted five years and eight months came to an end in a ceremony at Reims in exactly four minutes. As a matter of fact, this story, so far as the American public goes, this story began a half hour before 9 o'clock, or at exactly 8.33 a.m. this morning when the president received the press and radio in his offices. He was flanked by members of the cabinet, the chiefs of the armed services, General Marshall, Admiral King, Admiral Leahy, and Maitland Wilson, representing the British on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and his wife and his daughter, Mary Margaret, and by some of his advisors and secretaries. The reporters were hurried along into the president's office at 8.33 by the secret service man who usually stand and wait for us and usher us through. He said, hurry, we haven't much time. And so, one of the greatest press radio conferences of all history began in the White House, and NBC's reporter who was on the scene has just arrived here, Leif Eid, to tell us exactly what happened at the White House press radio conference this morning. Mr. Eid. Uh, this morning, I, I splashed through the rain over the White House to crowd into news conference President Truman had scheduled just before his broadcast announcement of the end of the war in Europe. The president held us out in the lobby, oh, about three, four, five minutes late, which is unusual for the punctual Mr. Truman. And then when we got into that big circular office of his, we found it filled with all the big wigs of government. There was Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson seated at the president's right and Senator McKenneth McKellar on his left. Admiral King was there, and General Marshall, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal, Emma Davis, Representative Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, Representative Joe Martin, the Republican leader, Representative McCormick, the Democratic leader. There was Senator, Secretary of Commerce Henry Wallace, Acting Secretary of State Joseph Drew, and the President's White House staff, Steve Early, and Matt Conley, and Colonel Harry Vaughan, his military aide, and Jonathan Daniels, the press secretary, and, of course, Mrs. Truman and the Truman daughter, Margaret. There was also the British General Jumbo Wilson, Sir Henry Maitland Wilson, who represents the British here on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. When he came in, the president was grinning from ear to ear, and he 
stood up on his toes and sort of cased the crowd that was in there. It must have been somewhere between 150 and 200 newsmen who'd whipped up their enthusiasm all over, even if it was early in the morning for Washington newsmen. But they'd been waiting around for several days for this story, this big story. And then when the all-in sounded from the door, the president told us that everything was in confidence, held for release until 9 o'clock, until he could say it first. He read us his radio address to the nation and told us about the telegrams of congratulations he's sending to the allied leaders. And then he put in an aside, he said, we're celebrating my birthday too, whereupon there was a big, lusty, happy birthday from the crowd of newsmen, which is pretty unusual for that hard-boiled crowd. And he also read his statement on the Japanese war. You probably heard it by now, but he did emphasize one thing when he read it. He said he was informing the Japs what they can expect from now on. He said, we are going to be in a position to turn the greatest war machine in history against Japan. And also that Japan is going to have a terrible time from now on. The president told us he, he's been having terrific problems, the ones he's had right along. And he said he'd been prepared for this announcement since last Saturday, Saturday night. But we have other things to think about than this formal announcement. How we can either make the world a happier place to live in and keep or keep from going the wrong way. He said he put much he put much emphasis on working together with our allies in peace as we have in war. And he said he wants to emphasize time after time that we are only half through. And there was one other little touch that shows Mr. Truman as a family man. He talked about his proclamation, setting aside next Sunday, the 13th of May, as a day of prayer. And he looked up while he was reading and said, that's exceedingly fitting. It's Mother's Day, too. And now back to the NBC Newsroom. And now to continue the complete coverage of this momentous day in the history of our country, from NBC in New York, we take you to NBC in San Francisco for H.V. Kaltenborn. Come in, NBC in San Francisco. Gentlemen, from the NBC Newsroom in San Francisco, here's Mr. H.V. Kaltenborn. Good morning, everybody. This is Victory Day. We've had too many wars in the United States. I myself have been a soldier, war correspondent, war editor, war commentator in three of them since 1898. And I do hope I shall not live to see a fourth. To me, the great thrill of this morning, with the words of the President of the United States when he said that the flags of freedom are flying all over Europe. Yes, once again, freedom is more than a word in that great continent which has suffered so much from war and from oppression and where again and again the close living peoples have warred against one another only for destruction, for attempted conquest, which, is in, which in the end has turned against them. And the nation that has led in that aggression over the last century is the great German nation, which inherited that miserable tradition of success and conquest through war from Frederick the Great, and which carried it on through Bismarck and the first Kaiser, and then the second Kaiser, and then another kind of cheap Kaiser, Adolf Hitler. Yes, Germany had three wars, and three times she was triumphant. And then came the defeat of 1914-18. And the Germans learned nothing from that. They had won too many victories. They had found too many excuses for their defeat. And so, when that mountebank Adolf Hitler came, and when, as the piper of the post-war years, he led the German people once more into war, they felt once again, that this time they would succeed. And once again, they have failed. And once again, they have had to sign the signal of defeat. What a scene that was. The W.W. Chaplin painted for us this morning in that schoolhouse of France near the historic city of Reims with the representative of the new German government and Yodel, who was so close to Hitler, signing unconditional surrender. And this time, we saw to it that no future mountebank 
can deceive the German people as to just what happened. But it was complete, unequivocal, absolute defeat of arms. And as a result of that, it's going to take a long, long time before anyone can even try to deceive the German people as to what has happened. And as a matter of fact, we ourselves will see to it that this time they are not deceived. Now, NBC, in line with its full coverage of the momentous VE Day activities throughout the world, brings you a special broadcast from Paris, a broadcast including the voices of the military leaders who planned and put into operation the strategy which brought Nazi Germany to its knees. In a moment, you will hear Air Chief Sir Arthur Terry, Rear Marshal Montgomery, General Omar Bradley, and General Devers. So, for their voices, we take you now to Paris. This is the European Theater of Operations. Within the next few moments, you will hear messages from the Deputy Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, the Commanding Generals of the Army Group, and the Admirals commanding the fleet of the United Nations in European waters. First, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur William Tedder, who has been Deputy Supreme Commander to General of the Army Eisenhower since the formation of the Allied Supreme Command in 1943. Air Chief Marshal Tedder. Troops forced to Normandy beaches on June the 6th, 1944, 
All United States ground forces were fighting under the command of the 1st United States Army. Within six weeks, with men and equipment pouring ashore, we had grown to a force twice the size of a normal army. On July 26th, this massive 1st Army attacked from behind its hedgerows to tear a gaping hole in the strong side of the enemy. By August the 1st, its 17 divisions had fanned out into the plains of France and were heading to cut off breath and lay the noose for the Argentan Falais trap. And so, on August the 1st, we divided this huge American force into two armies, the 1st and the 3rd, with the 12th Army Group in command of both. It was a plan the group had been working on since the fall of 1943. In the nine months that followed, we have amassed two additional armies. Until today, the 12th Army Group comprises the 1st, 3rd, 9th, and 15th American Armies. It is the first wholly American group of armies to take the field in any war. It is the greatest accumulation of power and force in the nation's history. Our armies have seized the liberation of France, Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg. They have fought 700 miles from the beaches to conquer half of Germany and join forces with the Russians. They have stabbed across the Czechoslovak border and into the hills of Austria. They have destroyed whole groups of German armies in the West, given hope to the peoples of Europe, and speeded the timetable for our war in the Pacific. The achievements of this group of American armies are monuments not only to the vitality and resourcefulness of the American people, but they are living evidence of the courage, the skill, and the bravery of those American soldiers who lie buried near the battlefield we have won, and of those troops, tens of thousands of them, recuperating in our hospitals today. We have captured more than two million enemy prisoners, 350,000 in the rear pocket, and a million since we crossed the line. Germany was defeated when her armies were destroyed. Virtually every German that faced us in the original armies of the West has been killed, wounded, or taken a prisoner of war. At Argentum, the First Army closed its trap to annihilate entire corps of the German army. It blocked enemy strength to the north, while our Third Army raced around the end and carved the enemy into prisoner pockets. Not until he reached his Siegfried line was the enemy able to recover from the terrifying cost of these battles. When von Rundstedt threw his three thick armies into the Ardennes, we smashed his armor, flung the remnants back, and broke through his great fortifications to overrun the Rhineman. Within a month, we had destroyed the German army destined to defend the Rhine, crowded our cages with another quarter of a million German troops. Without slackening our stride, we crossed the Rhine to encircle the Ruhr and trap the German army that had hoped to save the Hartland. Pushing quickly to the east while also attacking to our rear, we bypassed his mountain strongholds and bagged another 50,000. During the month of March, we captured on an average of a German division a day. This was increased during April. Today, I wish to commend every man and officer in this group of American armies I have been privileged to command. No greater armies and no finer troops have fought anywhere under any flag. And I want to express my deep appreciation to General Hodges of the 1st Army, General Patton of the 3rd Army, General Simpson of the 9th Army, and to General Giroux of the 15th Army. We have worked closely together, shifting divisions and corps at will over a 400-mile front, and to give us complete flexibility and the power to concentrate anywhere at any time we chose. Germany is beaten, completely and utterly beaten. The myth of her superiority has been buried with the German dead throughout the nations of Europe. But today, we must turn our efforts to the same third defeat of Japan. There can be no let-up, no slowdown, until the job is done. Only then shall we win the peace that will make this VE day a day of hope and promise for all generations. Thank you, General Bradley. Field Marshal Sir Bernard Law Montgomery has commanded the 21st Army Group since its formation. British, Canadian, and American troops have served under him and his command has swept across Europe from Normandy to the Baltic on the northern flank of the Allied forces.
during the last few years. What I have to say is very simple and quite short. I would ask you all to remember those of our comrades who fell in the struggle. They gave their lives that others might have freedom. And no man can do more than that. I believe that he would say to each one of them, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we who remain have seen the thing through to the end. We all have a feeling of great joy and thankfulness that we have been preserved to see this day. We must remember to give the praise and thankfulness where it is due. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the early days of this war, the British Empire stood alone against the combined might of the Axis powers. And during those days, we suffered some great disasters. But we stood firm, on the defensive, but striking blows where we could. Later, we were joined by Russia and America. And from then onwards, the end was in no doubt. Let us never forget what we owe to our Russian and American allies. This great allied team has achieved much in war. May it achieve even more in peace. Without doubt, great problems lie ahead. The world will not recover quickly from the upheaval that has taken place. There is much work for each one of us. I would say that we must face up to that work with the same fortitude that we faced up to the worst days of this war. It may be that some difficult times lie ahead for our country and for each one of us personally. If it happens thus, then our discipline will pull us through. But we must remember that the best discipline implies the subordination of self for the benefit of the community. It has been a privilege and an honor to command this great British Empire team in Western Europe. Few commanders can have had such loyal service as you have given me. I thank each one of you from the bottom of my heart. And so, let us embark on what lies ahead, full of joy and optimism. We have won the German war. Let us now win the peace. Good luck to you all, wherever you may be. Thank you, Field Marshal Montgomery. The commanding general of the 6th Army Group, General Jacob L. Devers, was chief of the armored force and commanding general of the European Theater of Operations before leading the United States 7th and the 1st French Armies in the invasion of southern France last August. Since then, his troops have fought their way through the Vosges Mountains across the line and collect the last song. That will do it for today. If you uh, have a comment, email me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, kencurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net.